It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to have on the show Janine Amodeo, who covers loans for Bloomberg News in New York. How are you, Janine? I'm well, James. Thank you. And good morning. Thank you for having me on today. Very excited to get your take on the markets. We're also delighted to see Mary Ellen Olson, who looks at commodities for Bloomberg Intelligence in Hong Kong. We'll be coming back to Mary Ellen a bit later in the show to talk about Indonesian high-yield companies and electric vehicles, so do stay with us. But first, Janine Amadeo with Bloomberg News. You're the Zen master of loans, one of my very favorite markets to cover. We've been working together for more than a decade. You were in the market on the sell side for quite a while before that, so we're really delighted to have you on the show. Thank you. Leverage loans, it's a... 1.4 trillion roughly dollar market. It's the best performing part of credit this year with gains of almost 8%, making this, I think, the best year since 2009. So it really does stand out. But I'm just kind of wanting to get a sense from you to start off, Janine, what's the tone right now in the leveraged loan market? Right now, we're actually having a uh, euphoric risk on period. Um, It had been quiet for uh, a while when we've had some more concerns about Fed rate hikes. But since um, there is news that they may pause, the equity markets have been soaring um, and doing quite well this year. And leveraged loans have gone in tandem uh, with that. So just for the people that don't know this market very well, I mean, what is a leveraged loan? How do they work? Break it down for us a bit. Of course. Uh, So leveraged loans are loans that are to sub-investment grade companies. Generally, it could be for for any company, even in your neighborhood. It could be, you know, a lumber uh, plant. It could be a tire company. Um, And how they're structured, they are, generally speaking, seven years, uh, non-amortizing, that are bought by uh, collateralized loan obligations, who are the biggest buyers of this product, and uh, and they trade 
And some of them are pretty big, right? You get it talking about, you know, tens of billions of dollars in some cases. Billions sometimes. Um, there could be a $50 million add-on, um, you know, to all equal the $1.4 trillion total asset class. Yeah. And even though you've talked about high yield and, you know, that sort of implies risk, they are sort of household names in lots of cases. I mean, there, there are companies in there that we would recognize from the high street. Right. Like we recently uh, had a deal for Carnival Cruise Lines that came back in Carnival Corp. Um, there's SeaWorld just did a repricing. So, yes, very, very large. Some public companies, many of these companies and leverage loans are companies that were bought out by private equity. So uh, leverage buyouts, and that makes up a big portion of uh, leverage loans is M&A. So um, from the investor side, um, why would investors like them in a rising rate environment? Well, right now, uh, the benchmark rate is called SOFR, and it's a floating rate. Um, we had LIBOR before, but we transitioned to SOFR. And uh, in a rising rate environment, your benchmark rate is increasing. So the way lenders make money is the benchmark rate plus the margin plus a credit spread adjustment now for LIBOR, um, as well as uh, receiving the loans at a discount generally, uh, so under par. And so in this environment where rates have been rising, lenders are then earning more interest income. And have the margins also been increasing? The margins have been increasing. Um, we had a difficult period of time back in 2022 when we had a ton of hung debt, which is debt for deals that were closed before they were sold uh, to the tune of something like $40 billion. Um, so after that, you know, pr prices in general moved up uh, for margins and discounts. And just um, to go back to that hung debt point, which you uh, raised, I and mean, we're gonna come back to that in a bit, but um, hung debt, basically, as I understand it, banks, uh, agreeing to lend money to companies um, and they kind of lock in a rate, but then the market changes. So, you know, banks typically sell this stuff on to other investors, right? And and then when the market suddenly changes, banks end up holding it and they're not, they don't actually want to hold right. it, but they end up with it on their balance sheet. Exactly. So they're holding it on their balance sheet. A lot of that actually has been whittled down since the beginning of the year um, as we're, we've been in a more risk on mode and deals like uh, Nielsen, uh, Citrix have have basically sold down to, uh, you know, their whole levels. So, you know, you're talking about prices going up and you use the word euphoric. Um, we came into this year pretty bearish on uh, high yield and, and leverage loans because of the recession outlook, because of the rates outlook, because of all of the other pressures that we thought. And, you know, everyone's been calling for a distress cycle for a long, long time. And, you know, it seems to never happen. But why are prices going up right now? Well, they've been going up um, before this burst of new launches the last couple of weeks. They were going up because we had basically no supply. So when CLOs are printed, they have nowhere to go. So they have to buy in the secondary market. So more demand prices were going, going higher, you know, higher meaning towards par. Um, right now, they're staying relatively steady, a little bit under 95 cents on the dollar. Um, but we now have a very full calendar of new issuance, uh, over 24 deals in the general primary market. Uh, so I think we're seeing that, that level off a little bit. So I think it actually came down uh, a slight bit yesterday. But even with that burst of issuance we've seen, I mean, still on a, on a year-to-date basis, the year has been 
pretty slow, right? I mean, it's not much volume so far this year. No, volume has been clearly, clearly down, um, at least over over 20% uh, over last year. So you could see a lot more supply, but still be down on the year. Plus, you've got what, you know, you've, you've described the, the collateralized loan obligations, the CLO, they buy a lot of this stuff. We we are now seeing kind of a bit of a recovery in that too. And, and we expect them to possibly come back, you know, quite strongly in September. So you've got this demand for still not enough supply. Right. I mean, what I think we will see in September is some of this hung debt that has not come forward to back to the market. So to relaunch for deals like possibly bright speed, maybe Twitter, Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, which has roughly $13 billion of debt on the on the bank's balance sheets. So we may see some of that come out post Labor Day. Okay. But you kind of think prices could still keep, up, keep going up even though you, you'll get more supply? Okay. So what would keep the prices moving in the uh, direction towards par would be if the Fed decides to halt any further rate hikes, uh, if equities continue to perform as they are, if companies' performance also improves and ratings uh, upgrades will also help the index go higher. Things that could bring it down would be some of this hung debt that also will be coming out still at steep discounts. So then you'll have a flood of that coming in. For example, you know, it could be in, in a 90 range, you know, some of it. We shall see. When we started the year, a lot of um, big um, banks were calling for a default rate that was quite high in leveraged loans. These companies, you know, they have a lot of floating debt. As you say, fundamentally, they'll be more tested by the big rate move. It costs them a lot more to service that debt. Won't there be more distress and defaults? I mean, there can be for the companies that cannot handle where their interest expenses right now. So, you know, given, given you know, where SOFR is and, and where the margins are right now, that may be too much for companies that are already, let's say, rated B3 and maybe have had felt some of the issues of a recession uh, looming and um, their businesses can't, can't handle that. So we, we could see some, we could see some, but, you know, again, in a $1.4 trillion, the amount of defaults is, is minimal. So it's not a huge part of the market. Right. And that's why it's also so attractive. So here you have, even though it's called junk loans, your returns are just hovering under 8%. You know. How long have you been looking at this market for? How many years? I have been in this market since um, the early 90s. And how many times in the in that period have you heard regulators? Have you heard all sorts of people on the sidelines say this is a scary market? Stay away. A gazillion times. <laughs> and why why is it they're always wrong? That that's always fascinated me. That you know they talk about CLOs blowing up, they talk about leveraged loans blowing up, but it never happens. It, it never happens. I, I I just think because the the product is one. It's it's a, a necessity because. Again, every every mom and pop shop to large uh, public companies to infrastructure to you know, other oil and gas companies, they all need leveraged loans. The other big topic that I wanted to hit very briefly, private debt. 
um, you know, that is loans directly from from a, a lender to a to a, a borrower. We used to call them bilaterals a long time ago, but now it's private mm-hmm. debt. Um, how does that work with leverage loans? Does it take over the business? Does it encroach? Does it is it cannibalizing, or is it living side by side in perfect harmony? Do you think? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily perfect harmony, but they have um, they have money to put to work. Uh, it's um, they had stepped in on a couple of deals to sort of do a bridge when the our BSL broadly syndicated loan market was not as exuberant and and then we've even seen deals where okay they come it's almost like a band-aid and they come and supply the the money so the company could do the acquisition and then later they bring it to the banks so so they have a role for sure and 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 does it make it a little more competitive definitely so it's not like it's the business can just go to those bankers who underwrite and do the committed debt for all these buyout deals and acquisition deals and you know now they have competition but as far as i have heard from my sources private credit is actually bringing their prices down sort of sort of to compete more with the 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 bsl market interesting so before we talk to mary ellen olson at bloomberg intelligence what's the next big thing to watch out for here janine i mean based on your experience based on your knowledge of these markets are you kind of more optimistic or more pessimistic about the rest of this year? I'm actually optimistic. I We have seen deals in the last few weeks come out for repricing of deals, so cutting the margins. We have seen companies that are strong pulling dividends out. We, we are expecting a deal this week and uh, next week to launch for Tenneco, which was one of the hung debt deals um and it all seems to be going well many deals are tightening at least three times uh upsizing and clearing out in pricing so we only have a few weeks left of summer unfortunately but i would say we're going to see some deals come uh the hung debt come in post labor day and once that clears out i think it's leading the path to more m a and so what i'd be looking for is the building of M&A and could it come to the debt markets in the fourth quarter? It could, maybe later in the fourth quarter, but I'd be looking for uh, towards uh, 2024. Great stuff. Janine Amadeo from Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Read all of Janine's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. So as I mentioned earlier, we're delighted to welcome back on Credit Edge Mary Ellen Olson, who covers commodities for Bloomberg Intelligence based in Hong Kong. How's it going, Mary Ellen? Very good. Thank you so much for having me back again today. So I know you cover a lot of different countries and companies, but I wanted to focus on Indonesia and in particular the high yield sector there. Let's start with nickel. It's a key component of electric vehicle batteries. Indonesia is a big producer of the metal. Why is the sector in focus right now? I think the sector is in focus because there is more and more investment opportunities. Just this year, we've seen one high yield bond issuance from Nickel Industries, which is a nickel producer operating in Indonesia. And we've also had a couple nickel IPOs. So I think what you're seeing here is um, investors' response to the government's regulatory policy, which is encouraging downstream processing, especially in in nickel and copper and, and other metals. 
You talk about the regulation. I mean, you've written actually about uh, what you call resource nationalism. That doesn't usually sound good for investors. What's the situation in Indonesia? I think in Indonesia, um, what's what's been happening with some of the companies is that some of the export bans and downstream processing requirements have actually enabled the build out of infrastructure, which is going to bring in new investment and new opportunities over the long term. Um, so in a way, I see it as beneficial. I think that there has been some criticism about um, some of the export bans from agencies like the WTO, but it's really targeted at you know bringing the added value onshore to Indonesia. And I think it will lead to more investment opportunities for um, people over time. Okay, but for foreign investors, that doesn't usually work out particularly well. And why, why is there an opportunity, do you think, in Indonesia? In Indonesia, what we're seeing is a lot of the companies that are operating there are are domestic companies. Um, so they do have, you know, they're, they're in the loop in terms of right now helping to build out um, this EV supply chain, especially. And it's interesting to see that with for example, the coal mining companies, um, which you know do have majority ownership by um, do- domestic entities, and what we're seeing is that they're trying to put some distance between themselves being predominantly driven by coal revenues, and and they're diversifying to support the EV supply chain. So we have a Daro Energy that's looking at building a aluminum smelter and also looking at building a hydroelectric plant to support the smelter, um, you know, within a certain period of time. And then we have another coal company, Indica Energy, which is actually um, opening up a, a business that focuses on the two-wheel um, EV motorcycle. So they've actually, you know, come out with some new motorcycle models, and they're really trying to invest in what they see as a more green and sustainable business. So I think that that's kind of the path that these companies are going down because they're trying to transition to participate in the new energy EV supply chain. So that all sounds great if you're in Indonesia and you're an Indonesian company. But if I'm a credit investor, you know, an international credit investor sitting in New York or Hong Kong, why, why sorry, or, or London, why, why should I look at uh, Indonesian commodities right now? Again, because I think they're attracting a lot of investment. If you look at some of the the new projects that are coming in, they're quite big. Um, we're seeing interest in from some of the major car makers to come in to invest in some nickel assets to make sure that they have the resources they need to sustain their business over the long term. And Indonesia's nickel deposits, they, they, they account for about a quarter of the global reserves. So if, if nickel is in demand and certainly critical minerals are in growing demand to support the um, EV supply chain and, and new energy, you, you having assets in Indonesia could be a, a bonus. And the companies that we're talking about here, I mean, um, you mentioned a few, but, but are they mostly companies that fund in dollar bond markets? It's, it's a mix. I would say that some in Indonesia, you do see some of the high-yield companies leaning on U.S. dollar borrowings, um, as well as some local currency borrowings. Um, but we've seen, what I've seen most recently is equity, equity raising. So in the two IPOs that just went out, of course, were in Indonesian rupiah. Um, 
for one of the companies, Nickel Industries, which is a company I just um, wrote a BI focus idea on. They actually attracted funding from um, one of the domestic companies, United Tractors, also through the equity market. So we're seeing a good mix of funding. And I think the, the funding's not only coming from onshore, but also um, from off- offshore as well, because Nickel Industries just did that $400 million bond in April. Okay, so again, if I'm sitting outside of Indonesia or outside Asia, um, is there a liquid pool of uh, debt that I could invest in? Yes, the across um, the six companies that may be more focused just on mining exclusively, there's about, I think, $12 billion in dollar bonds outstanding. It really ranges from company to company. Some of the, um, well, probably the state-backed company, which is MindID, which is the holding company for the state mining assets, that has the biggest amount of debt outstanding. Um, and probably the smallest would be Nickel Industries, which has only about $400 million. Um, so it, it's a it's a good chunk of change, but really, if you look at some of the majors globally, like Vale or Rio Tinto, they probably, on a standalone basis, would have seven billion in dollar debt outstanding. So, still, still a lot of room to grow. But yeah, I think that it's it's gaining mass as we um, continue to see new companies trying to to raise money. And are the yields more attractive there? Y- yes, um, definitely. I think that when you look at the coal companies, so so previously or historically. The, the major issuers have been the coal companies, and they've always traded wide simply because they have, you know, the mounting coal risks and ESG concerns. Um, so even within the high yield category, they've tended to trade quite wide to their peer group. Um, so, so, yeah, in the, high yield, in the high yield sector, I think Indonesian high yield definitely trades wide to what you would get overseas. And I, and I was looking at that before the, the podcast, and it's interesting for let's say Indica Energy, Adaro Energy, they have bonds due in 2024 and they're yielding um, over 7%. So uh, uh, for a double B minus US dollar corporate bond, it's it's below 7%. It's about 6.5% at, at the moment and at the one-year mark. Um, so yeah, they're, they're yielding, yielding more. And I think that those bonds for the coal companies have come in a lot recently simply because they've, uh, the coal prices have been so, so high and they've been able to amass such a, a great amount of cash on their balance sheet, which has helped them reduce some of the refinancing risks. So the room for them to rally further, do you think, from here? I think so. Um, the bonds are still trading a little bit be- below par. Um, so you could see some, some upside for them as they close in on maturity, especially since the maturity is only a year away. And certainly for, for Adaro, Adaro is actually a, it has a triple B minus rating from Fitch and it's still offering a, um, a yield in excess of 7%. And it had at the end of December or at the end of March, it had about 3 billion in cash on its balance sheet. So um, it definitely has limited relative to about 750 million of bonds outstanding. So, um, you know, it, it seems as though they're liquid enough and, um, you know, to support that bond repayment with, within a year's time. Cool, though. I mean, um, I know it's performed well, but isn't that sort of a dying business and everyone wants to get out for, because, as you mentioned, the ESG risk is quite high? You know, I, I think it's a transitioning business. I wouldn't be surprised to see less uh, refinancing in the dollar bond market, but I'm certainly seeing a lot of companies right now 
looking to acquire coal assets, whether they're you know uh, an Indian steel company or um, th- there's another Indonesian company that is a coal servicing contractor, Buma, which is looking at some of the BHP assets in Australia. So I'm not sure exactly how how those assets are going to be financed going forward, but there is an interest among players to to still acquire those assets. And you got to remember in Indonesia, I think the you know it majority of their power generation is coming from coal-fired assets still. It'll take a while for that to go. It'll take a while for that to kind of go away. Yeah. yeah. On the, on the flip side, though, the nickel thing, I mean, that plays into the EV story, which is such a hot theme, and, and it does kind of play into the um, the E in the ESG. Um, is, is there a lot of upside in those bonds, you think, the, the nickel side? Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a single B, um, B plus B1 rated credit. So obviously that's at the lower end of the high yield spectrum. So it does, you know, indicate that there's more risk in a bond like that, which deserves a, a higher yield. So relative to its, its peers, I still think it looks a little bit wide um, and can close the gap. And in the story I just published a couple, a uh, couple of days ago, what I highlight as for the catalysts are really the fact that it has been able to tap the debt markets. It's been able to bring in new equity and it's really pivoting to focus on the electric vehicle supply chain with its production rather than selling into the stainless steel markets. And so when you sort of step back and look at all the things you're covering, and I know you have quite a broad coverage area, how does um, Indonesian high yield sort of fit into that? Um, is, it, is it the big opportunity right now or is it just one of many? Well, what we're seeing is... I'm seeing more interest in Indonesia, I think, because of what's been happening in the Chinese property market. So people are looking to diversify their portfolios a little bit more away, maybe from the Chinese high yield, which you know has, has had a lot of challenges this year. And of course, this has been limited for them because most of the exposure in, in my sectors has been through the coal companies, which do have ESG-related concerns. So now that there's this transition um, that is happening, I think that it does open the door for more people to invest in this space, especially, you know, if they can come through and actually come through with some sustainable products that, you know, um, are green, you know, I think that that is definitely going to bring more investors in. Great. Okay. Well, I've got to ask also, Mary Ellen, last time we spoke, an Indian company called Vedanta was on your radar. They were in a bit of trouble What's the latest there? Is there is it all sorted out now? Are there any problems on the horizon we have to, have to worry about still? Uh, well, yeah, the, I think they, there's still some liquidity concerns for Vedanta. They have a, a dollar bond coming due in January. Um, so they still haven't really uh, completely closed the funding gap as I see it through, you know, through the end of March. They're still going to need to to raise some additional funds. And the fundraising still remains relatively slow, and the information remains relatively thin. So I think with I think with Vedanta, it's um, the January bond. They they just extended a intercompany loan, which should provide them with some liquidity to to funnel towards that. They've been increasing their brand fees, and there's there was a rumor that um, potentially they could use some some brand future brand fees as security against um, some new debt that they could potentially raise, which would bring in liquidity. But at the moment, there's been nothing concrete that's happened there. So it's still uh, evolving. And at the same time, we're hearing a lot from the company about the 
the chip factory that it wants to open up and some of the investments there. So there's still a lot of um, unanswered details and a quite a, quite a still a big maturity wall <laughs> in the coming years. Thanks very much, Marianne Olson of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all her great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out and hope to see you back on the show soon, Mary Ellen. Yep, thanks for having me. And thanks again to Janine Amadeo from Bloomberg News. Read all of her great credit scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crumby. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.